This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to another episode of the Educated Home Buyer. This is where Josh and I answer your home buying and mortgage questions live here and help guide you through that process of becoming the educated home buyer. So Josh, got some news this week. In fact, it came out today. We got the Fed coming out. They did not hike rates, which was a good thing. But a lot of the language uh, in their uh, speech and in the conversation afterward from Mr. Powell led the market to believe that they aren't done hiking yet. So I think that's a really good place to start tonight's episode. You know, start and, with the really crappy stuff first. Yeah, the 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 fun stuff. I don't even know that they said, and we have some quotes actually from the Q&A and from the release from Powell of, of what he actually said. Um, and he didn't say anything. One of the things that we've talked about here earlier on, same impact as policy decisions. So what do we mean by that? They didn't hike today, but they were um, hawkish enough in their rhetoric that the markets are saying, hmm, still a potential they might hike one more time, even if they don't, what they did with the dot plots, which is again, just their prediction, their projection going out forward is what's going to happen with rates. And they are projecting that rates will stay higher for longer than what people were previously thinking. And that is all of the negativity that we're seeing in stocks, um, negativity in the bond market in terms of interest rates, um, you know, trickling up a little bit more. You had earlier in the week, Jeb mentioned, hey, I don't like this chart. And I was of the opinion that we were probably going to stick somewhere here. We're, we're, we're searching for a ceiling and going to stick because I don't see a reason for them to go higher. I don't see a reason for them to go lower, uh, which is what kind of the Fed confirmed today. But uh, we'll we'll look at some stuff. We'll look at some data here that I think directly contradicts the things that they said. But I also think that if you're the Fed, that you've worked really, really hard for the last 18 months to get yields up, to be restrictive, to slow the economy and to get inflation under control, you would do what they did. You would want to talk tough and, and convince the market that you're going to keep rates high, higher for longer, and that will basically... Um, be enough. It's sort of like getting your, your kids afraid of you. They have to know that you walk the walk if they think you're talking, but you're not actually going to uh, to do anything, then that's where you're at. That's really good parenting advice. In fact, Josh, do what you say you're going to do. Uh, yeah. They so gotta be, they got to be fearful. You, you got to be fearful. And right now the Fed is to some extent. So going back to what you mentioned a moment ago about that chart, here's the problem is that you know you break out to a new high and uh, the next stop is is so far back in the chart with regards to to resistance um, on the upside that it's you know it's it, it's hard to say where 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 the next leg is is it four and a half is it are we there now um it, it's interesting uh nonetheless and with that you know the market is is you know we're going into that slow time in the year so you know rates going up moving into the slow time of the year is going to mean less transactions happening slower market a lot of the things that we're going to talk about as we dive into charts right now so Josh what we're going to do is we're going to add these here we're going to make ourselves a little bit bigger and we're going to talk about inventory so inventory we actually saw the biggest week over week increase that we've seen in quite some time um up almost 9000 homes week over week which was a really, really big jump. Now we're comparing it to a week previously where we saw like a 300 home jump week over week. That could have been because of, of the holiday, hard to say, but this week we did see a meaningful jump. So inventory is increasing right now. Is that a one-off? Is that something we're going to continue to see people that missed the boat? It will be something we'll talk about as weeks come. Um, Orange County inventory is about the same as it was last week, 2,335 homes. Huntington Beach down a little bit, sitting at 209 homes. New listings, you can see here, right? So we saw new listings start to decline. Then we saw that big, big jump. We're still sitting at the lowest levels for this time of year that we've ever recorded on record. So the question is, does this trend continue or does it stop, right? We need to see week after week after week of, of you know, um, continuation uh, with new listings coming to the market to, to, to really know whether or not it's something we're going to see going forward. So, you know, we talked about 
when you see big things happening in the market, you're going to see new listings be the first thing to jump, right? Is this the start of something more? I don't think so, but again, hard to say at this time. Uh, this week, we got 10% fewer pending sales than we did the same time last year, so less transactions happening out there in the market. Uh, the number of total pending sales is 12% less than last year. So new pending sales down 10%, total pending sales down 12% from last year. So still trending at the lowest levels we've seen in quite some time. Um, and this chart more or less goes right in line with that same chart, just showing you um, the gap between where we are this year versus where we were last year when it comes to pending home sales week over week. The inventory jump that I mentioned earlier took us from 509 to 518. Uh, this time last year, we also saw a jump, uh, believe it or not. Uh, you know, previously, last week, we saw a decline in the numbers, uh, which was interesting, right? Maybe that holiday. This year, we we saw a jump. And then last year, we also saw a jump. Wasn't as meaningful as the jump we saw this year, but up 5,000 homes. So is it seasonal? Is it something that happens every year? Again, it's, it's, it's hard to confirm it without seeing more and more data going back from the previous years. But nonetheless, we will continue to update you on it. Uh, number of price cuts trending at, at what we've seen, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, when, when we had a quote unquote more normal market. So nothing to be alarmed with yet. This is the same chart, uh, just broken down and just showing the last couple of years versus, um, uh, going back previously. So number of homes, uh, getting decreases in prices, price cuts, if you will, has a little uptick there, um, but still sitting below those 2022 numbers. Median home list price. Uh, list price is down to $399. Median home price sitting at $499. Jeb's phone is going off in the middle of the podcast. Going to turn that off. I think that's three weeks in a row, Jeb. Possibly. Maybe it's a trend. You know, three weeks in a row is a trend. Uh, home builder new home sales cancellation. So there's a lot of charts out there at the moment that the number of transactions, the number of people canceling escrow is that, you know, new highs, so on and so forth. Found this chart to be interesting because yeah, new home sales, you know, up, you know, previous to, to where we were in 2021 um, and some other times in the market, but still we're not trending at anything, you know, crazy uh, with the number of people backing out, right? But data, like anything else, takes a while to catch up. So this is something we'll continue to update as, you know, we get more uh, monthly data that that populates on this. Josh, did you want to add something there? I didn't know if you were looking to talk. No, no. Okay. Credit card debt hits a trillion, right? We talked about this previously. Um, what are your thoughts on that one, Josh? Well, I, actually, let's um, here. I, I want to jump for. I didn't see that you threw that one in there. So this is one that has got a lot of play. And that is obviously not good. But remember, one of the things, um, we had retail sales last week. Retail sales were up. And when you account for inflation, retail sales were essentially flat. So credit card debt, when we deflate this, real credit card debt may not be that much higher. Um, but if we go, I'm trying to see Jeb. Let's Take your time. Look. I can come back to this one too if you want to look at it. Go, go, go over to slide 21 real quick. 21. Let's see what we got. Are you clicking against me? Right there. there nope. That's it. So this is household debt service payments as a percentage of disposable income. This is probably more important. So credit card debts are at an all-time high, but remember that are near an all-time high, and even if we adjust for uh, inflation. But when you look at that, it's showing you that incomes have also risen over that time. So it's trending up. This is not good, but we're, we're near lows in terms of debt service on that debt. So it's just, it's important when you're looking at things that you're realizing that everyone has an angle that they're, they're looking at. Look at both sides of it. Look at the flip side of it. It is true. Credit card is up. It's trending up. It's at a very high level, but debt service is, we is lost your, telling. uh, your, your, uh, your, your photo there, Josh. I mean, I, I realize you're not photogenic. Uh, not at you all. Don't to, you don't need to take yourself off. But can you hear me as the important? I, I can hear you. Yes. In fact, you look way better this way. Look way better. We can, we can stick with it because I have no idea what in the world would have happened. It says it looks like my camera was unplugged, but no one has moved and the camera has not become unplugged. All right. Well, so so we got a a talking circle here on on uh, on the 
Uh, this is hilarious. This is a handsome, so good. a handsome talking circle. Oh, dude, can you fix that, please? Um, NBA mortgage forecast up, oh, kind of came back in, went back out. So, uh, you got to take this with you know a grain of salt. Um, but you know, previously when looking at uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association forecast, they had Q uh, four of 2023, uh, looking at a, a rate of six point two. Q4 of 2024, they were looking at 5%, and Q4 of 2025, they were thinking 4.6%. Well, you can see in this chart, all of those numbers they're predicting now are a little bit higher. So you got 6.3% at the end of Q3, which quite frankly would be a pretty decent decrease from where we are at the moment by almost a percent, depending on where you fall in, in, you know, in the in the rate spectrum, so to speak, but 5.4 by the end of next year and 5.1 by the end of 2025. So again, a lot of things are, are taking into uh, account when they create these forecasts. And quite frankly, a lot of forecasts are wrong, just like anything else, because there's so many variables that go into it, but it's something that we're, we're kind of watching and paying attention to. And a, uh, a positive, I think, Jeb, in terms of that, that those they released those numbers on the 18th. So two days before today, two days before the Fed meeting. So they weren't um, they weren't impacted by what the Fed thinks is going to happen. Those were their projections. Yeah, good, good, good to note. Um, if you have student loans, student loans have started again. So if you haven't been paying them this time, even though you didn't have to, some people were. Uh, now is a good time to call and make sure that you're on track to do that. Um, they've kicked back in. This is one of the things, the reason I put this in there, right? So you got, you know, I heard a stat, Josh, you probably heard it too, because we listened to some similar podcasts, but the average student loan sits around $17,000, which isn't a big, big number. For some people, that might be a lot of money. For the majority of people, that's not a lot of money. Um, and that's one reason when they did the $10,000 kind of for, you know, forgiveness deal that they were doing, it, it helped a lot of people out by, you know, or would have helped a lot of people out had, all of that taking place, but nevertheless, um, students taking money out of the economy in, in other fashion, whether it's food, whether it's retail, whether it's hospitality and service, whether it's anything, right? Just less money being spent in the economy, spent in another place means growth in, in theory slows down and, and helps with the inflation numbers. So, um, Josh, what are your thoughts on, on that? That's the one thing that's inescapable. Like people keep saying, oh, this is going to hurt housing. People aren't going to be able to qualify for mortgages. People with student loans who bought, now that they have to start making payments, um, they're not going to be able to make those payments or make their mortgage payments. They'll be forced to sell. I don't think it's going to impact that because there was always a calculation um, making sure that they met the debt to income guidelines based off of a payment, even though they were not making a payment. That doesn't mean it's going to be fun or comfortable for some of those folks. Um, but uh, we are looking at a lot of money that was otherwise available to be spent coming out of the economy. And it can't help but slow growth going forward because it's just less money moving around the economy, buying goods, services, experiences, YOLO, FOMO, all the fun stuff, Jeb. <laughs> so we talked earlier um, about uh, the Fed meeting and some remarks that Powell made in the press conference following. And I don't know if you're going to read through all of these, Josh, but a lot of them have to do with where the Fed stands at the moment, their stance being restrictive and the idea that if, you know, they're paying attention to the data and that if something comes up in the data, then they'll react accordingly. But other than that, there's not really any meaningful information in a lot of this, at least in, in the way that I read it. But what are your thoughts? That's exactly my, my point. This is sort of bullet points and then organized in, in a way different because they, they came from the press conference, things where he's answering questions. So they don't weren't necessarily ordered logically. But if you hear, what is he saying? Um, might be done, not necessarily done. It'll depend on the data. What data are they looking at? They're looking at inflation and they're looking at jobs. And you're going to see some interesting stuff in a couple of the slides I have here on jobs, um, jobs although the, the jobless rate is very low, um, it's trending in the wrong direction, which is what they want to see. So it's trending in the right direction for what the Fed wants to see. And inflation is also going that route. The only wild card we have is oil and what that does over the next coming months. And you and I talked earlier today, I made the mistake of Googling a couple of different topics on oil the other day. And in my Google feed, I've had 
like 900 articles on what's going to happen with oil. And about 500 of them told me it's going to the moon. And another 500 said it's just about to peak and it's going to go back down where it was. So um, no, sp no specific insight there, but I don't think anyone really knows. And oil is the wild card that could disrupt inflation. Uh, absent something coming from that energy sector, inflation is improving and under control. And the jobs market appears to be going that direction also. And there is one comment that came up in, in the highlights from, from his remarks. And he basically says, if energy prices increase and stay high, that will affect spending and may affect inflation expectations. So, you know, I take that two ways. Um, one is, is there, is there, it could with with the money being spent on energy that could increase inflation because of, of of the cost of energy, but it could also mean that less money is going to other places in the economy because it's going to oil, and therefore, is it increasing? Is it not? Because you're getting some counterbalance in those numbers. So that's where a lot of this stuff becomes really tricky, and and some things are weighted heavier than others in 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 the numbers, and you know, so it's. <laughs> It's a, it's a whole, it's a math equation that we're not going to get into. Well, uh, the one that I highlighted there says he's literally his words. I am never intending to send a signal on timing of any rate cuts. Did a great job. Basically, they made it sound like we don't intend on ever having a rate cut. And in our dot plots, we pushed out those cuts as far as possible. Because again, signaling that it's coming, the market will jump the gun and behave as though they have yeah. happened if the cuts are coming. So if you look at this very rational, he's saying we're data dependent. Here's the data. In simple terms, we're going to be looking at jobs. We're going to be looking at inflation. Um, and we have some things in here that uh, strike a potential government shutdown, the resumption of student loan payments you talked about, higher long term rates. Those are among risks to the economy. If I love win, the government shutdown in there. What, don't we get one like every six like, months? Didn't we just yeah. avoid the government shutdown like two months ago? Yeah, but yet uh, we're adding more debt to to you know, it, it, to, to make the problem even worse, but it's a problem. We're acknowledging it's a problem, but guess what? We're going to add more to it and it's Mike, it's probably going to happen. Um, yeah. Anyway. So if you're, if you're listening to this on Spotify, on Apple, on a podcast platform, you're wondering what charts are you guys talking about? What are you guys talking about? There's a link in the description um, to go and check those out. So if you're, if you're on YouTube, I posted it after the video went live. So you might have to refresh in order to get it, but you can go see these, read these comments. If you want to read them, just so you know, they're out there. Um, that said, Josh, now we start looking at, what are we looking at here? U.S. Treasuries. Interesting one, Jeb, going yep. back, uh, the last one, two, three, four recessions. Um, what has happened? This is the, the 10 year treasury yield and the fed funds rate. The last four recessions we've got, they were all preceded by the Fed's fund rate, Fed funds rate getting higher than the 10-year Treasury. We are there now with as big of a, an exceeding, uh, the Fed funds exceeding the 10-year by as much as we've ever had. That is a signal that I, I, I'm not ignoring. So despite all of the talk, despite everything on the news today, higher for longer, uh, economy's doing great, we got to stop inflation, we got to increase the employment rate. This is giving us a signal that I wouldn't ignore. There you go. Uh, we, we looked at this chart. This is the chart that we, we found interesting, but hard to nail down just because um, uh, of, of what the real neutral rate is. So you know, just going to throw it in there. We're going to pass by it. Um, but, you know, Game of Trades on Twitter actually has a really a lot of really good charts. Um, so if you follow them, get a lot of a lot of good info. Um, average per month trend in job gains starting to slow. So they did acknowledge that they're starting to see some signs of, of slowing in, in, in the job market. Um, what are we looking at with these numbers? So just look, last year, uh, the average for the year for 2022, 399,000 jobs created per month on a 12-month basis. So going back the last 12 months, it's down to 257. On the last six months, down to 195. The last three months, down to 150. You can see the trend. Like uh, someone that Jeb and I love and respect um, looked at the last report and he's like, that's a solid number. There's no way to spin that. I mean, that is a, a solid uh, expanding economy. But what we're going to see in the next chart here, Jeb, is that that is not actually the case. Because what we have seen, um, if you look at this chart, look at these revisions. They go back and revisit them three times. And we have seen every month this Revision. year, yeah. big downward revisions. So the, the initial number 
that we start with is a big number, and then we're ending up at really, really underwhelming numbers. Then you dig into this data. Last month, um, I believe we had 900,000 part-time jobs created and uh, 700,000 full-time jobs lost. There was actually, so it looked on paper, 200,000 additional jobs created, but we lost 200,000 full-time jobs. So uh, the Fed's not dumb. We've gone through this. They're smart. They have access to the best data. They know this. So uh, to me, a lot of what we saw them talking about today is, again, talking up their hand because they don't want the economy to stop the work or unwind the work that they've done over the last 12 to 18 months. Which takes us into job openings, which is another potential inflationary um, thing that the Fed looks at. And looking at this, this goes back to, to 2000. So you see a recession, we, we end up with less job openings, and then we get a nice expansion. Probably the biggest thing I wanted to show with this is the big green line there shows you that we went way below trend during COVID, during the pandemic, shot way up above trend in terms of job openings. And then we're back about where that trend should have been in an expansionary economy. And if and when we hit a recession, it's going to go below this. There's also a confounding factor in this, Jeb, in that they are actually, they don't, there's no one giving them this information. They are looking uh, at job postings by state. And so there is a belief that many of these jobs are getting double counted because things that can be done remotely are being posted in multiple areas. So that's a theory, but bigger picture, it's normalizing. It's about where it should be with the long-term trend. And we'll see where it, it goes moving forward. That was just in relation back to the credit card debt, Jeb. Um, that non-housing debt, you can see there, it's it's increasing, but that happens over time. People make more money, things cost more money. Um, the most important part there is just the debt service is very manageable for households as of right now. Yeah. And this is a chart I just threw in here um, just because, in fact, a client sent it to me um, and said, looks interesting. Um, and he's actually, he's a client from YouTube, um, ended up buying two different investment properties here locally. Um, but nevertheless, just shows some revisions in in, in forecast and in, in where people thought at the beginning of the year versus where they think now. Um, again, forecasts, revisions, they, they are, they kind of go hand in hand and you'll continue to see more of them as, you know, the, the, we get more data out there in the economy. I wouldn't be paying attention to the stuff uh, personally. Um, I'd be paying more attention to the things that we talk about, whether it's the right time, money in the bank, time horizon, those sort of things. Um, and then Josh, this was again, another chart that I found interesting, just showing that when home sales start to decline, um, in any meaningful way, it, it typically the next thing that happens is a recession. So we see a lot of these charts in, in you know, in the, the people that we follow that just show essentially a lot of historically look or a data, a lot of data when you take it back and, and look at it historically points to the fact that a recession is coming if it's not already here to some extent, right? So um yeah think think of the logic to this jeb what happens when people buy a house they need furniture they need to hire an electrician a plumber they're going to put in new countertops they're going to paint that money flows through the economy when you have houses not selling you don't have that money moving through the economy so uh when we went from two three years ago six million home sales down to somewhere a little over four that's a third of of all of that activity of all of the little things i like i don't think people realize how much money gets spent beyond we talk on the show here on the podcast on the live show here, you need this much for a down payment, closing cost, reserves, all that stuff. That, that's just the tip of the iceberg um, for most people when they move. They don't get a turnkey home. Most first-time buyers are buying something that needs some work, and that involves trips to Home Depot, trips to Lowe's, trips to living spaces, all of that fun stuff, and it's not happening to the level that it was. And the last chart here, I found this one interesting too, just because it's something we talk about all the time, effective property uh, taxes by state. Um, kind of see where you are, fall in line. Um, you know, if you're in one of the lighter gray states, property taxes are tend to be less expensive. So if you're moving from one of those to one of the darker blue states, be prepared. Um, know what you're getting into. Um, do your homework up front, that sort of thing. So um, nevertheless, as I mentioned, those are in the uh, link in the description below. I'd like to take this time to ask if you haven't done so already to hit the thumbs up if you find any value in the show. 
If you don't listen to the podcast, the actual podcast, it's kind of a live version of it done on my channel. There is a podcast channel, The Educated Home Buyer, where you can go and watch videos of the, the, the podcast that we do put out on all the other platforms. If you don't like looking at our faces, you can also listen to them. Uh, but if you don't mind, rate, review us if you're listening online um, on one of those platforms or go over and subscribe to The Educated Home Buyer. All helps. There's an Instagram channel as well. We're putting up shorts and doing some short form video. Uh, all of that stuff helps us get in front of people who want to become home buyers and essentially provide some education. So uh, with that, Josh, there's actually a question here that I'm going to put up right to start with because Kim is one of our uh, regular viewers and uh, it, it has to do with the podcast. So this past week, we talked about taxes, the tax benefits of home ownership. One of the things that has essentially kind of gone away um, to some extent. Uh, and, and for those that it hasn't gone away, the benefits aren't nearly what they were. But the question is, during episode 40 of the podcast, you mentioned who would benefit for a tax cut? Did I understand that the more you pay in property taxes, that it's best to use itemized deduction on your taxes, Josh? So uh, there's a there's an element to that. So before it makes sense to itemize, Kim, you're married. So we have a large standard deduction. What is it, Jeb? 27.6 or something? Yeah, $27,600. So you would have to pay more in interest and property taxes before it would make sense to itemize. And Let's say currently you have three or four thousand dollars of itemized expenses and you go, that doesn't make sense. I'll just take the standard deduction because it's so much larger. Well, remember, if you only got to thirty two thousand dollars in interest and property taxes, you can add back in and itemize that other three or four thousand. So there may be a better gain there. But in looking at it, the last few years, if you had bought a $600,000 home with a 3% interest rate, that's only $18,000. For a married couple, you're like, why would I itemize? That's $9,000 less than my standard deduction. Add in property taxes, go back to the chart that Jeb just showed. We're super familiar with California. California is easy, one and a quarter percent. So on that $600,000, you have $7,500 of property taxes. At 3%, you got 18, 7,500, like $25,000. Why would I itemize? So that was what we went through on the show. For married couples, unless you are buying with a large loan, which you can only deduct up to $750,000 now, um, but unless you have that seven seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, and at current rates at seven percent, the numbers change. That six hundred thousand dollar loan, seven percent, forty two thousand dollars. But specific to the property tax portion of it, something that is very important is you have a ten thousand dollar state and local tax cap. So if you live in a high uh, income tax state, so if we're here in California, you pay nine percent of your income you and your husband make $150,000, you're already paying twelve dollars or $13,000 of state taxes. So you don't get to deduct any of your property taxes. It's a complex subject. Um, but what is the simplest way, married couples and people buying uh, really affordable homes in that two to $300,000 price range are probably going to get no benefit. And as you move up that scale, and if you're single, you may see a, a decent benefit, but it, it will decrease over time. And if you ever get the opportunity to refinance to a five and a half, four and a half percent interest rate, it's likely to not provide any tax deduction or tax benefit to you. And here's the deal. Talk to a tax professional. Don't listen to Josh. I mean, listen to Josh, but take it with a grain of salt. Go get a licensed tax professional. I'm covering us here legally. Um, no, but in all seriousness, talk to somebody that does this every day just to make sure, confirm the numbers and make sure you're good to go. Um, you know, one thing I did want to touch on that I, I didn't, I forgot kind of at the at the the, the top of the show is, you know, I, I said I would start talking about the title of the show. So this one's Black Swan Event Coming to the Housing Market in 2024. I linked to an article in the description where you can see that article. Josh and I kind of had this conversation the other day. Black Swan event coming in 2024. One thing, Black Swan events aren't predictable. They're exactly what they are. They're Black Swan events. And didn't we have one of those, Josh, in 2020? Wasn't that the Black Swan event of all Black Swan events? Yeah. 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 So the, the idea that somebody is, is saying that one's coming because of, of other things is, is a ridiculous statement as far as I'm concerned. Um, but... Again, there's nothing out there at the moment that that says that the world is going to fall apart. Um, you know, in in 2024, the, the comments now, you might not like it, say, but it's the comments on our videos say the world is going to come to an end. In yeah, the those next people year, are Jeff. idiots. So that's <laughs> real clear. I mean, let's be completely let's be transparent. Um, let's go to this question. This is a good one. 
is it typical practice to sign a letter of commitment and work with just one buyer's agent? So depends. Um, there are a lot of agents out there that that do business like that. Um, it's been taught that that's how you should do business. If you're going to use your time you know, to show people property, drive all around that you want a buyer that's committed to you and is not going to go to an open house and write an offer with someone else. So I understand the practice behind it, why people do it. Um, there's no standard in the industry. So either people do it or they don't, or maybe they do it occasionally. I've never done one in doing business 20 years. I've never had a buyer sign one. And my reasoning is a little bit different. I've got burned by doing that. Um, but my reasoning is that, hey, if somebody wants to work with me, they're going to work with me. I don't want somebody tied into an agreement. And that's the, the reason they're using me because they feel like they have to because they signed something. I want somebody to use me because that's I they think I'm the best option for them. Um, so you have to decide um, your agent. There are agents out there that won't show you property without one. That's how they do business. And then there are agents like me that, you know, as long as we have a verbal commitment, so to speak, that, hey, if something isn't right, you're not happy, or you're going to go over a different direction, you let me know before we waste a bunch of time. So Jeb, how do you yep. how do you handle it? Uh, if the borrower says, Oh, I'm also working with Susie across town, and she's I showing I'm me some houses, guy. too. Yeah, okay, I'm not your guy. Yeah. And I, where I, I, I'm not wasting my time um, showing somebody property that that has, you know, whatever. I mean, I have people reach out to me all the time. Hey, Jeb, um, you know, if you find this, uh, you know, um, you know, call me and I'll go with, I'm like, no, I'm not. If I find that I'm going to sell it to somebody else that wants to work with it. You know, it's like, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, effort and energy on somebody that's not, that doesn't have a commitment to me. So, and but there the, are people the, out there that will do it. So there, you, you there are. And yeah. Jeb, there, there's an equivalent to that on the mortgage side. There's people who say, well, I'm going to do an application with them and an application with you. And then once we have the approval and we get further in, I'll let you know if we're going to lock it with you, if we're going to close. And the problem with that, and this isn't so much on the front end, by all means, do, do your shopping, compare, compare multiple lenders. But once you have a purchase agreement and you are opening escrow, at that point, we're doing work. We're incurring the cost of an appraisal if you're not being billed for it, time, effort, energy. We're not going to do that. I had someone about two months ago, it was actually a viewer of the show, said, um, and in their situation, they weren't being a turd. They honestly weren't. They had a very unique situation, and they had been told by Chase Bank that they're pre-approved. They got two months into it on a new build, and they go, oh, yeah, sorry, you don't qualify. So they had me and another person saying, we can get you the loan. And their take was, well, I, I was burned by Chase, so I want to go with both of you, and then whoever gets me approved and has the better terms. And we just basically had to tell them, I will go this far, but you're going to pay these things up front and we're going to make a decision very early. And he was lucky um, that he, he had a good person on the other side too. We both got him approved and he, he ended up picking a loan, not so much off cost. We had two different loan types and he went that route. But for the most part, if someone wants to double app and wait till way late in the game, it's just not how it works. We actually do all of our work and get paid at the end, just like a realtor does. And we need to know up front once you know our terms that you are going to work with us. Good stuff. Um, Tanya, Tanya says, always learning so much in each episode. Thank you. So appreciate you listening there. Um, there's another one here uh, from Andrew just says zero chance rates are below 6% next year. Lots of organizations are saying that are, are saying that I believe if you live in a hot market, prices will remain the same. If not a small percentage higher, love the show. So Josh, you know, this is something we've talked about, right? So you know, in 2021, when the market was absolutely bananas, we said, I don't think you can duplicate that. Like that is like the hottest year we've ever had. And then the first quarter of 2022 said, hold my beer. Let me show you what a hot market's really like. And it went even, you know, crazier. And then since then, we're like, you know, up 40% nationwide and a lot of markets out there, uh, property value wise and going not healthy. It's not something that us as agents, as you as mortgage professionals want to see, we need to get back to that long-term trend. Um, 4.7% in home price appreciation nationwide, 65 plus years. That said, you need home prices to kind of move sideways, stagnate a little bit to get back to that trend, maybe a little bit up, maybe a little bit down. And we saw some up and down in home prices over the last 12 months. Now we're sitting positive, depending on who you're looking at, a couple percentages uh, points year over year. But Josh, the belief here is that we need we need wages to catch up. We need you know rates to to to, to stabilize. Um, you need some 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 pricing price home prices to kind of fall in line with that, right? And we don't 
want to see prices do what they've done. It it creates other problems, which could potentially lead to black swan events. Um, you, you keep having more and more of that. That's when you have to, to worry about something else breaking. Here's the way I would like to compare it to what I'd like to compare it to, to help people understand who think, oh, you guys love high prices. Imagine if you went to a car dealership and instead of having like an entry-level vehicle, a mid-level vehicle, and then a nice one, they only had Bentleys. That's all they could sell you. How many people can come in and, and buy Bentleys? That's an extreme example, but that's what it feels like a lot of the time. We're talking to people who have done a good job of saving money, who have good credit, who have a good income, and they say, I want to live in Southern California. And you're like, okay, that's going to require $800,000 for a single family residence. And you run the numbers, you go, I can't afford that. And I go, I agree, you can't afford that. That's not fun. Um, it, you know, we talk about, the reason why 2000 and 2000 or 2020 and 2021 was like Disneyland for us, it wasn't because rates were so low. Oh, we're making money because rates are low. It's because you get to say yes to everyone. Basically, everyone could qualify. Go back to that same example, $600,000 house at 3%, $18,000 interest at 7%, $42,000 interest. Think of how many people that just knocks out of the game. Yeah, it's nice to do a lot of loans, but it's also nice to be able to say, yes, I can help you. Yes, I can help you. Yes, yeah. I can help you. Agreed. Yes, you can get what you want. Yeah. I mean, no point in having a podcast and or a YouTube channel to educate home buyers if nobody can buy, right? I mean, there's there's absolutely no point we're wasting our time, Josh. We should hang up and do a knitting channel. I don't know how to knit. We can go to my golf cart channel. I, I think that's there's a big pent up demand for a really good golf cart channel. That said, we're here to educate people because that is really what we like to see. We like to see home ownership because we know what it creates long term. So that said, Josh, you know, we're here to provide you guys information because we do think things will improve at some point. Just you need to be ready when that time comes. So you can do that by continuing to educate yourself. Listen to podcasts, listen to people out there that you trust. Um, listen to people you don't trust, too, so that you can form an, form an opinion um, but nevertheless, you know, again, it's where I was going with this comment was that they love the show. So we, we, we love that you love the show. Um, Jeb, Jeb, yep. let's, let's throw this up here. Michelangelo says, and we're, we are blessed by Michelangelo in our presence, but he says, Ooh, nobody, how long nobody did it can... take him to paint the Sistine Chapel, Josh? <laughs> nobody, nobody can buy now. This is stupid. Um, we were just talking before the show. I get it. I get a lot of people out there feel that way, but. Two new purchase agreements come in this week on purchases that we're opening. Um, are either of those buyers stoked about their interest rate, their monthly payment, the price they're paying? No. Um, are they millionaires, jillionaires? Do they have you know $450,000 a year income so they just don't care? No. Um, they're people that did the right thing, saved money. Both of them have a nice down payment. One's 10% down. They're both 10% down, actually. Um, both of them close to 800 credit scores. Um, one's single, one's married. They both have good six-figure income, household incomes, but not $200,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really easy to say no one can buy. There's no one else can afford. There are people out there that can do it. And we've talked about that driving force in life of hitting 30 plus, being married, having a spouse, having kids. That's it's a natural desire and drive in life, and people are out there who can do it. So, so there's going to be a video coming. Um, I haven't decided when or when I'm going to publish it, or if, I haven't even filmed it yet. But I'm in the process as we speak of deciding whether or not to pull the trigger on a new home. Um, not worried about prices crashing. That's not what I'm worried about. I am more concerned with the fact that my payment is going to be about two to, depending on which scenario I decide to go with, two to three times what I pay right now. Okay. I'm in a business, you know, that is, that fluctuates based on what happens in, in mortgage and real estate at the moment. Doesn't look, doesn't look like a lot of people are going to be buying houses. Um, therefore the, the, the sheer number of transactions happening is less um, and so it's hard to wrap a number around, you know, for the better part of 10 years, I could tell you about how many transactions I was going to do a year right now. It's, it's up in the air, right? Just because of, of willing and able that we talk about. So I'm able to buy and I'm willing to buy, but it's, be, it's a tougher decision 
right now than it would have been a year ago, two years ago. And I feel like there's a lot of people that are probably in a similar position as as to me um, that it's the right time in their life to make the move. It's just, are you willing to give up some things in order to do it? And so I'm going to kind of walk through my thoughts in that video. Train, like I've written this stuff down. I have a pros and cons sheet. I have all of the things that I talk about. I've got multiple scenarios and how to structure this thing. And it's it's a tough decision. It's it's in I'm trying to take emotion out of it. I'm trying to be logical about it. And um, yeah, so Josh, I just kind of went off on a tangent, but I think I, I can I understand what people are thinking. It's not a tangent. This is exactly what the show is about. Michelangelo is not wrong. Um, totally understand the feeling. I really, did, I didn't throw it out there and say, no, you're wrong. Everyone can and should. Um, it's a much smaller number of, of people that are willing and able in the current market, but they are out there. And that is why prices continue to inch up. And, and with that, Josh, the idea that people buying now is stupid. I mean, again, growing family, need more space need want more space we can make it work where we are um and so it's it's that it's that idea and and i believe what i preach on here all the time at some point rates are going to come down and with that lowering in rates gets more demand in the market and then you're competing and or dealing with other people and higher prices potentially and and just other factors that quite frankly if i do it now and rates come down it's a win for me I, and and so that's where I'm at. But um, stay tuned because I, I am going to talk about it in in more detail. Uh, but Josh, we got a couple good questions here coming from Rick, um, and it, this is one that comes up often. So I want to talk about it first. But he says I hear people like lumberjack landlord and one rental at a time. Both I don't know lumberjack landlord, but one rental at a time. Good channel out there. If you if you're not following, good one to check out. Talking about a 40 year mortgage. So here's the problem with a 40-year mortgage, Josh. There's a lot of headlines on it. A lot of people remember them from 08 when you could actually get one. Um, so they're putting videos out talking about this. And I can't speak to these two channels and saying that they did this. But a lot of people are like, there's a 40-year mortgage out there. And it's gonna, it's coming. It's it's happening. And the reality is it, it there is one out there, but it's a non-QM loan. And so the majority of people getting loans have no access to this. And there's a really good chance they're not going to because otherwise they'd have to modify things. Is that correct? 100% correct. So what what is that non-QM loan? It, bigger down payment. So it's not for people making a, a minimum down payment buying a first-time purchase. And it has a premium interest rate. So for the most part, it's great if you're looking at a 30-year bank statement loan and the rate is an eighth higher and I go to a 40-year bank statement loan. So non-QM loan, non-qualifying mortgages, not meet the QM guidelines. So for that person, it's helpful. So one rental at a time, you're looking to acquire rentals, it could be helpful in that small instance for that small portion of the audience that's buying investment properties and financing them with non-full doc loans. But for the average buyer, if you were looking at doing three to 5% down, not an option. Let's say you had 10 or 20% down and it was an option for you. The higher interest rate on those non-QM loans offsets any benefit to stretching the loan out 40 years does nothing for our audience here first-time buyers it may help that subset of investors out there looking to acquire more properties if they're already using non-qm loans um, and portfolio lenders so it's not just those non-qm loans there may be some banks out there that for loans they keep in their portfolio that they're willing to do it doubtful because they're they're risk averse and those are riskier the longer that goes on but i don't think it's going to impact the market at any time soon in a major way because they would have to redefine the qualified mortgage guidelines to allow them and they did away with them in the first time for a reason and, and part of the reason that we're not in a huge mess like we were in 08 is because of those qualified mortgage guidelines and because of dodd frank in in how they restructured down payments credit score requirements. Um, all of those things have kept these risky loans from being an option in the market, quite frankly, and giving people an opportunity to even take advantage of them, therefore making the the, the pool of mortgages out there more qualified, uh, better, AAA rated, that sort of thing, right? Because that's what created the mess last time is all the garbage that was allowed uh, to be to be introduced to the home buyer and then sold on wall street. So these things protected uh, the industry. Hopefully they don't 
go back on them just because they want to increase uh, housing uh, affordability. But you never know, right? History has a way of repeating itself to, to some extent. Um, Josh, this is another good one um, that, that's in conversation right now. So are buy-down rates okay if you can afford the rate? And why would I not choose this option? So I'm going to go back to me just for a, a, a second here and say, okay, I'm looking at my scenario, Josh. You Basically, I've been quoted an interest rate somewhere around 7% for what I'm trying to do. Um, it's a jumbo mortgage. It's, you know, um, nevertheless, good credit scores, all that stuff. So around 7%. So I could buy that rate down. Um, I don't know what the percentage is. We haven't really talked about it. And it's, quite frankly, I haven't even asked. And the reason I haven't asked about the option is because once I pay the buy down, that money's gone. It's disappeared. It's no longer my money. It's been given away. And I'm under the belief that interest rates are going to come down in a decent meaningful way within the next couple of years. So I'd rather pay a little bit higher rate now, keep that money and, you know, and and when the opportunity arises, be able to refinance. And that way I'm not sunk into this rate for, you know, and feel like I can't take advantage of that because I bought it down. And hundred percent. So the short, the short answer with a permanent buy down is it's a sunk cost. If rates move down before I hit my four to five year recoup period on that, I lost money. So unless you are confident that rates are going to be where they are today or higher for the next five, six, seven years, you're probably going to lose money on it. But again, no one has a crystal ball. You may end up right making that bet. Talking about temporary buy downs. I want to do a one Oh, buy down a two, one, a three, two, one buy down. It's smoke and mirrors. You're subsidizing the rate. So you could put the money over there in the impound account with the lender and they tell you, hey, you owe me less every month. Well, that's because you gave them more money up front. You say, well, I didn't do it. Seller paid for it. Well, the seller had you pay more for the house than they would have taken if they hadn't otherwise done that. So again, it's a shell game. We're moving money around. It's not a real savings. And what you are betting on is one of two things. Either in the future, if rates are the same or higher, I'm making more money and can afford a higher payment than I'm comfortable with today. Or just like Jeb said, rates go down. And in that situation, if rates do go down, you would win with a temporary buy down because it's not a sunk cost. That money goes into an impound account and you would get it back. So they're not perfect options. None of them are right or wrong. And they all require us to forecast what happens going forward. Several people have pointed out in the comments here, Jeb doesn't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. We all have to do our best research and figure out what we think is most likely. I don't even know what I'm having for dinner, Josh, much less what's going to happen it's in wing the market. Wednesday, right? It's wing it, Wednesday. It's not. I did wing Wednesday last week, and that was, a, I don't think that was the best call. You know, I came out of that place completely stuffed and felt like, uh, I you ate 32 much. wings. Of course you were overstuffed. It, it was a bit much. So this week, you know, it's going to be something different. Um, this is a question. You do a VA live every week, Josh, on a separate channel. Um, I'm not real sure if you if you have the answer here, but uh, thoughts on disallowable items on VA loans. So they're actually VA non-allowable fees, and VA has largely been modernized. A hundred years ago, back in the '90s, when I started doing loans, there was a long list of things that when if I you were asking, yep. if you were asking a seller to uh, accept your VA financing, they had to pay certain things, and it added up to at that time a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars more than if they had taken a conventional loan. Um, it's essentially been modernized. There are caps on if you're paying points and the way that works. And what I will say, have I seen this? Um, don't see it because the VA is serious. They they actually enforce this stuff. If you are taking advantage of veterans and not following the letter of their law, you will lose your ability to do VA loans really, really fast. The biggest thing we saw that was with big call centers churning loans to veterans, um, making new loans to them every three, four or five months for two, three years and stripping away their equity. Some big, big lenders got big fines and were no longer allowed to do VA loans. So does it happen? I'm sure it does, but it's not so much in relation to non-allowables uh, and it doesn't happen for very long because the VA does enforce it and takes it very seriously. Good, good. Um, let's see here, Josh. Uh, Tony, um, again, one of our regular viewers just basically saying election is next year. Government can print money, give away money, lower rates, forbearance on loans, anything to get reelected. No prediction about rates and the real estate market is safe. I, I don't disagree with that statement um a lot can happen in an election year um to quote unquote or a lot of things can be said 
right? And and how the the, the population views it, God knows. Um, we're all in trouble. Uh, but the the reality is, things can happen in order to persuade. Um, you know, the direction of, of things. So it'll be inter- next year will be an interesting mark. I mean, we've, we've been saying every year is going to be interesting for the last since 2020 next year will be another one. Uh, but what's crazy is I had somebody comment on a video yesterday or the day before Josh, they watched a video that I filmed probably in 2020. It was on partial claims. And she said, she was asking me a question on partial claims and said that she had just gotten accepted for a partial claim. And I'm thinking, Holy shit. It's, it's been three years. Like you just like, they're now still giving you a partial claim on a missed payment. So to go back to what Tony said here about things, you know, still being offered out there in the market. I mean, this isn't directly related, but lenders are still doing things to keep loans performing just FYI. So (laughs) yeah, it's, it's an everlasting problem. Um, Josh, we kind of touched on this one earlier, student loans coming back in. Do you think it will slow down the number of people buying a home? It would have to have an impact, right? Uh, You'd be foolish to think there weren't those out there that after a year of not making student loan payments, just going, oh, it's all going to be fine or the government is going to make it all go away. But what I would say is, Jeb, let's go back to the thing that you said earlier in the show, that that average balance on student loans is literally like $17,000. That payment's $150, $200 a month. And I'm not saying that's nothing. It's just not something huge and significant that is going to move the needle one way or the other. I do a lot of loans for people with monstrous student loan balances. They're called lawyers. Lawyers walk away with two, three hundred thousand dollars of student loans. Doctors also. Doctors, uh, big bank. Always been willing to overlook student loans for uh, for doctors just because they have the belief that they're going to be big earners and it's going to make those go away. Um, you've already seen the administration's response. They didn't get the forgiveness that they wanted. So what they're saying is we'll do, uh, take it from 10% of disposable income on your income-based repayment to 5%. So the payments are gonna be going down. They're minimal. Will it have an impact? Yes, it won't be a huge or monstrous significant impact. The difference in interest rates is a much bigger impact than the repayment of student loans. Yeah, I mean, it will have an impact to what degree hard to say. Um, again, if you're, if you're, you know, budget is a $200,000 home, that's where you are, then a hundred dollars a month is going to affect you a lot more than if your budget is a million dollar home, right? A hundred dollars is pretty insignificant when it comes to that sort of thing. So again, depends on how you plan money in the bank. You know, I, I, I can't, I know people that have a thousand dollars a month in student loans. Like that's what they pay. Crazy. So those people are affected for sure. Uh, But where where I was going, Jeb, those people generally have graduate degrees. The way, the way student loans go, once you medical school, it's insane what they will let you borrow. It's not just tuition. Most of the tuitions at those schools for the prestigious ones are already very high, but you can borrow your living expenses for two, three years. That's how these people walk away with monstrous amounts. Most people that are getting an undergrad degree and they're not going to a private school walk away with a reasonable number. So when you see, I see them all the time. There are people out there with giant student loans. I saw someone with a $365,000 student loan balance and their income with their degree was $56,000 a year. I said, That's they didn't teach you math when you got that degree, did they? Like <laughs> you you paid $360,000 for something that pays you $56,000 a year. So I, I digress, but really it's the, it, that huge number of student loan debt is probably, I would love to see the number. I would say the majority of it, more than half of it is to people with graduate degrees. And the other half is spread around the rest of people with degrees at a much lower level. And let's not forget those that actually got their degree, the people that really get screwed or screwed themselves or put themselves in a bad situation is taking out student loans for two or three years, never getting that degree and not being able to see the higher income. I'll have you guys know, I've pointed this out multiple times. We have fiber optic internet, like 2G, I think is what it is. And this garbage freezes every single week. It's amazing to me. Like my kids at home, we have 1G at home, fiber optic. 
I can have four kids. Well, I only have three. Three kids streaming something across multiple platforms. I can be watching TV streaming. My wife can be on her phone. There's 30 devices on the internet and nothing freezes. Here at the office, there's two computers, two. The right best now, part, Jeb, it's the same provider and it's less than a mile from your house. Yeah, this is like baffling. Like, I think it's a, it's a scam. Like, I don't think we actually have 2G internet. I think we're on dial-up. Um, anyway, so Josh, uh, it's 5.55. We're going to keep going a little bit if you got some time. But um, question or around. There's 206 people watching, so there's a lot of people that haven't taken any action. Please do that. Um, it helps us. If you haven't done so already, check out the Educated Home Buyer podcast, the YouTube channel, as well as the podcast itself. Uh, really, if you want to become educated, this isn't the place to do it. That's really, excuse me, that's the place you want to be because that's a deep dive into topics that aren't opinion, really. They're fact. I mean, this is what the, the benefits are in, in multiple ways. So check that out if you haven't done so already. All right, Josh. Um, let's see. I saw a good question and now I'm trying to find it. So I'll, I'll go to something um, Andrew said earlier. Andrew Kuhn in the, in, the, in the comments here, he mentioned that he has a 2.7% interest rate and basically a coffin, never going to sell it. So here's the, here's the catch, Andrew. I have a 2.99%. And for the better part of eh, two years, what I don't know how long I've had it, but I've said the same thing, not selling this. I'll keep this. Well, guess what? One of the scenarios that I'm pondering at the moment with the purchase of a new house is selling that property. Why? Because I've got so much equity tied up into it. And to take a home equity line on that equity is just ridiculous what the rates are um, on a second mortgage, which next week we actually talk about HELOCs and tapping equity. So if you're considering home equity line, second mortgage, you have any questions at all, that's a really good episode next week on Tuesday. They drop on the podcast on YouTube, so check it out. But nevertheless, I was that person. I'm now stepping back going, okay, I might be willing to let the 2.99% go in order to make the move that I need to make because it's the right time. So, you know, we often talk, Josh, about being the right time. The right time actually trumps a lot of the other decisions that, you know, um, that you say you won't do or, or, you know, wouldn't do for, you know, because you got to do it. Anyway. A couple, couple good questions here. I know an easy one. Robert says 25% down, 30-year fixed, conventional, everything else equal. What difference in rate would someone with a 770 score versus 770 plus? At 25% down, the difference between those two is going to be a quarter point. So uh, not a quarter point in rate, a quarter point in fee. So less than an eighth of a percent in rate. You could either pay that quarter point out of pocket or you could go up an eighth of a percent in interest rate. So it's not nothing. Um, and contrast a million dollar that, loan, that's 2,500 bucks. It, it's real money. And contrast that to we go back before these LLPA changes earlier this year, everything 740 and above was the highest tier. So we talk about credit on the show and we used to say, hey, don't worry about it. Get it above 740, whether it's FHA, VA, conventional, that's going to get you the best term. Terms, that's no longer the case. You do really want to maximize it and if possible, get that 800 score. All right. Good stuff. Um, Kirsten, can I make big purchases using cash, not credit when I'm under contract? I want to get a head start on furniture, but don't want to screw up anything. I think this is a really, really good question, Josh. Um, too many people, you know, it's an emotional thing. Want to get ready, want to buy these things, not buying on credit is very important. Uh, but can you use the cash to do this? So this is never going to be a deal killer. It could be additional documentation. And we say could be, it's most likely not going to be. So your bank statements are good for 60 days from the date of application. So we're going to need to get sometimes updated statements, depending on how old your statements were when you got pre-approved. Um, and if they see money going out, I mean, let's look at it this way. If you have $500,000 in your account, you need $100,000 to close, do whatever you want with the other $400,000. But if you need $23,285 to close and you start with $27,000 in your account, it could potentially cause a problem 
if you need to provide updated bank statements later in the process. And one of the updates that occurs that some people don't think in terms of, they're like, nope, I gave you the latest and greatest on my account. Um, I'm going to run out and I'm going to buy some things at Living Spaces. I'm going to spend $2,200, but I'm going to use my debit card. That's money gone. We go, okay, cool. You made your $5,000 earnest money deposit. We need a printout from your bank account showing it cleared the account. So now not only did your $5,000 deposit clear, your $2,200 at Living Spaces cleared. That's a scenario where it could be a problem. In practical terms, it doesn't sound like what you're asking in any way is going to be a problem. If you have the money, and it's not needed for closing and or reserves, spend it how you want. It could potentially create a documentation or an explanation issue, but it's not going to kill your deal. Um, not, not quite a veggie. Um, interesting name. Says, I'm not sure house prices can come down steeply. If everyone bought at an elevated price, which they didn't, um, but let's continue here. Won't they try to sell for at least that amount, especially when rates drop, prices are going to rise even more. So there's a couple of things here. Buying a home, selling a home is an emotional, emotional process. It's like a, it's a lot like a stock in a sense that when somebody buys a stock, they buy Apple hypothetically, and they pay 200 bucks for Apple. If Apple drops to 150, those people say, I'm not selling. I am not selling. I will stay here until that price gets back up to what I paid for it. And guess what? People do it all the time and they stay in there and they're in there for years until the prices come back up. Selling a home. Similar in the sense that it's emotional and that people aren't going to want to sell for less than they paid for the home in most cases. And when somebody's when a neighbor neighbor's home sells and they feel like it's less, it's inferior to their home, then they judge it based on that. I'm not selling for less than than Josh sold his house for. My house is nicer. It's in a better location. I've got more upgrades, whatever. So that said, yeah, you're going to have some of that. On top of that, most people didn't buy at an elevated price, right? We've seen you know, people that bought in 2020 are probably at, at the biggest risk. Um, 20, well, mid 2022 through, you know, I don't know, um, what now, I guess they're probably at the biggest risk because they're paying the most. Um, but let, look how much, how many less transactions are happening in the market than previous years. So that that's part of it. And a lot of people have down payments. They've sold. It's it's not the scenario that a lot of people want it to be. But the idea of that when rates drop, prices probably rise. I think there's some truth to that. It's hard to say by how much or if it will happen. But the idea is that as more demand comes into the market, it you know you got more transactions happening, more competition, driving up prices. Anyway, Josh, it's six oh two. Wing time. Is it wing time? Um, it's not wing time. Let's answer one more question and then we'll say sayonara instead of adios. Nope, I stick with adios. Um, let's go with uh, Josh. Josh. I mean. You want to let Kim's question close out the show? I, I, I don't see Kim's question. Where is it? So look at the last two. Yeah, actually, go two ahead. Good ones yeah. there. Uh, isn't. Isn't it harder to get a loan? Is it harder to get a loan or credit when inflation costs are high? Josh, either harder, harder in the sense that your payment is going to be higher. When inflation is high, interest rates are higher, your payment is higher from a debt to income perspective. Yes. Nothing else changes other than if inflation is high, that leads to stress uh, on lenders and banks and they start tightening their guidelines and requirements. We have seen that happen in the jumbo space, which doesn't go to Fannie Freddie, FHA, VA, USDA. Um, but we have not seen that anywhere else. So there's a small correlation there, but but not really. And, and I'll, I'll I'll just I'll just touch on this last comment here. It basically just says Jeb the overinflated house overinflated house prices today are unsustainable. Unfortunately, Paul, I've been hearing that statement for years. The last ten probably every year, somebody's like prices are overinflated, uh, overvalued. It's a bubble. Can't, it's burst. can't stay this high. Can't can't be this high. I can't afford it. We're still no here. one can so, buy them. Could you be right? Sure. Could you be wrong? Hmm. The probability is a little bit higher that you could be wrong. Because it goes back to supply and demand and supply is low and that has to change in a meaningful way to see a meaningful change in prices real simple that said guys if you found any value tonight hit the thumbs up follow us on instagram at the educated home buyer uh youtube channel is there if you're on the educated home buyer watching go over to jeb smith follow that channel um i appreciate it uh but as always guys 
you know, without your support, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. And for that, we are grateful. So we'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. Until then, sayonara. There's nothing for me to say if you say sayonara. You, you got to say whatever the equivalent no, is. I don't know. I don't speak Japanese. So well, I, 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 I am boycotting. I'm done with the show. <laughs> Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.